And now we invite you to relax. Let us pull up a chair as the dining room proudly presents your podcast. <laughs> pod a cast. Pod a cast. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, Sherry, and we'll provide the rest. Pod to cast, auto d'oeuvre, why we only live to serve. Try the great stuff, it's delicious. Don't believe me, ask the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> Bad French accent really got away from me. As I said, I think a couple weeks ago, it's my favorite joke. Bad French accent. It is. And Lumiere's French accent, Oh, is bad. Yep. Enjoy that bad accent. Only uh, French accent the movie, right? Like, I don't think anyone else is even trying. No, even if it is supposed to be set in France. <laughs> yes, it's me, Gaston. And Chip has an American accent. He sure does. And once again, spoiled for choice for the podcast song. Yeah. I'm sure every, you know, with all these Ashman Mankin movies, I'm sure that there was somebody like pulling for every single one. Like, you, could, <laughs> you know. Do bonjour, bonjour podcast or something. And certainly no one pods like Gaston. No one casts like Gaston was on the table. Definitely. You know, all of it. Podcast again. Everyone's favorite song, Human Again. (laughs) There may be podcast there that wasn't there before. Casty and the pod. (laughs) Yes, but I picked podcast because I could do a bad French accent. And I did. Yes. And let's start the show because I think we might have a few things to say about this one. Maybe one or two. Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom of the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartons with your family. <laughs> I think I've made that joke. You have. I was waiting to see if it ever came back. <laughs> We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. And we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. Editing is a dangerous pastime, I know. (laughs) This week on the program, we are continuing Disney's Renaissance era with 1991's Beauty and the Beast, directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale. Yeah. These were two uh, guys I hadn't really thought of as major Disney directors, but uh, they actually have a very interesting career Mm -hmm. that we'll talk about momentarily. But first, Mom, what? Just kidding. I need to mention the mailbag. I have forgotten (laughs) to talk about the mailbag for like 15 episodes in a row. We have a mailbag. You can email us any question at mouse at gmail.com. That's M-E-M-O-M-M-O-U-S-E at gmail.com. But I was thinking recently, I'd love to do another mailbag episode. How come we don't get any questions? Um, because you don't uh, tell anybody about the email address. <laughs> uh, in fairness, you don't either. True, true. Okay, so there we go. Having said that, though, Mom, what does this movie mean to you? I, of course, remember when this movie came out as well. I did not get to go see it right away when it was first in theaters, but I had friends who went to see it. I remember them talking about how much they loved it. And I also had friends who told me that Belle reminded them of me and I was extremely flattered. (laughs) Yeah, that checks out. That checks out. So for a while, Beauty and the Beast, after I did see it, 
did get to see it in theaters. I'm pretty sure we got to see this one in theaters several times. But what we did is we went and saw it once and then we went and saw it a couple times later in the dollar theater. So that would have been like after it had already been released for like a year or close to it. Mm -hmm. But this movie was my favorite for a while because Belle loves to read just like I did and do. And she had brown hair just like me. First Disney princess with brown hair. That's true. I had not thought of that. Well, teenager me did. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, this was when we were into watching all the making ofs and behind the scenes that they would put out on TV and... Hello? Yep. We watched all those things, all those specials. (laughs) I feel like I knew a lot about this movie when it first came out around that time. I did also go to see the IMAX version in 2002 when it came out on a date with your dad. (laughs) And it was not good. (laughs) This movie did not translate real great to IMAX. And it may also be partly the problem that we were like in the second row or something. But there are so many scenes that when you see them on that big of a screen that close up, you're like, oh, they didn't put a lot of detail into those really long distance shots. Because even on a normal theater screen, you can't tell. Right. The scene where Belle is running up the hill, you know, I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. Yeah, she's like a couple of blobs. (laughs) And you can really tell in the IMAX version. So can't recommend that. Don't go see it in IMAX. Not meant for HD. No. I mean, watching it on Disney Plus this week wasn't too bad, actually, on our bigger screen TV, but not the same. It would be interesting to buy the actual 4K version and and compare it because I know Disney Plus has 4K, but it's very much 4K in quotation marks like any streaming version of 4K Mm -hmm. because American Internet is not actually good enough to stream 4K video. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I've heard much about the hilarious 2002 uh, IMAX showing as far as you, you know, identifying with Bell. Yeah, I think almost every woman who's been in my life has been a Bell like you, my girlfriend, any girl I've ever had as a girlfriend, any person I was friends with. Like, it's just it's all it's all bookish nerds, um, <laughs> often with brown hair. But maybe that's just, you know, mm-hmm. the Jewishness. Well, and being brown hair is the most common hair color. <laughs> this movie, what does this movie mean to me? Uh, I mean, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's. It's a good and I know I watched it before this probably multiple times, but the most distinct memory I have of it is so definitely when I was a kid, I did not think like certain things are for boys and certain things are for girls. And I don't think that's how you and dad really raised us to to be like that. You know what I mean? But somehow just because, you know, I guess we pick up these poisonous ideas in school or whatever. I decided very much that like, I don't like the Disney princess movies. Those are for girls. Like I don't like the movies for girls. (laughs) And I have a very distinct memory of being somewhere in the double digits of age and looking through our movies, wanting to watch some Disney movie. This is possibly when you and dad were out on a date or something. And as I and I were home alone, but deciding like whatever I've seen, you know, Aladdin a billion times. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. I don't want to watch Aladdin again. Whatever. I'll watch Beauty and the Beast uh-huh. and watching it and being like, oh, this is a full on great movie. 
I'm an idiot. <laughs> I was like, even though it's a girls movie, I'll watch it. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, I guess movies for girls are actually very good. Like, I remember <laughs> sp- specifically that was like an important revelation. That's so funny. Yeah, it's a, of course, it's, it's a, it's a great movie. It's an excellent movie. It's one that I come back to a lot. I don't feel like I have a specific personal relationship with it. It's just so obviously good. I mean, I know I kind of use this word a lot, but I think it really is just undeniable. Like, yeah, it's very, it's a super fun. It is. It's a great movie. This is just one that even though I loved it, it just never like worked out for us to own it very much until later. Right. So there wasn't as much time when you were little for me to be like, Hey, watch beauty and the beast (laughs) for you to get over your hangups about girl movies. (laughs) Well, there was absolutely no reason for me to have those hangups. I mean, you're right. We didn't own this one, but we sure owned like, Little Mermaid, we owned like Sleeping Beauty, you know. Uh-huh. So, no, I, I truly have no idea how I, I got those ideas. But I remember this movie disabused me of those notions. <laughs> of course, some people would say that it's not even a movie about a Disney princess. Let's talk about it. So obviously, uh, The Little Mermaid was a gigantic, gigantic hit. Because it was such a big hit, Katzenberg and Roy, you know, who are in charge of Disney animation, were pretty easily able to go to Eisner and Wells and say, we need more money. Mm -hmm. We want to start producing animated films on a much larger budget. This was also in part because of vice president of animation, Peter Schneider, who wrote uh, in a memo to Eisner in 1989, quote, If cheaper means not squandering money, we are making strides to improve the efficiency and better manage the process. If cheaper means smaller budgets for our movies, then this is in conflict with bigger, better. With Jeffrey and Roy's desire to make truly top production value movies, it will cost more money. In my opinion, the reason that Disney animated movies were and can again be great is the ability to throw out and redo and make it better. The money spent during the making of Mermaid made a good movie into a great movie. Yep. Uh, And of course, this is where Katzenberg decides he wants to make a movie every single year or every 18 months at the latest. And so they start production on like a dozen different things at once. Roy E. Disney's big thing that he wanted to do was a new Fantasia. Mm -hmm. But everyone thought this was a stupid idea. Obviously, it would take (laughs) 11 years for that new Fantasia to actually really happen. Um, And since we're talking about Jeff Katzenberg, I have something prepared that I did not tell you about, Mom. Oh. You see, we, and by we, I mean I, have been talking about Katzenberg so much, he's basically become the unofficial main character of our podcast. And so much like many of our other running segments and bits, I decided that he needed a jingle. Isaac. That's just what I imagine going through every Disney animator's head whenever he came in to give them notes. <laughs> I bet. And be handed Diet Coke. Yeah. So uh, Katzenberg was very hostile to a new Fantasia. He and Roy didn't get along in general because Roy was like an artist and he loved the art of animation. 
and, you know, cared very much about things, <laughs> none of which is particularly true of Katzenberg. <laughs> so he, of course, begins really courting Ashman and Mencken. Yeah. Because they, you know, Howard Ashman in particular had so much influence on Mermaid. He was like, you know, we got to do something else. And Ashman and Mencken were really interested in doing a musical retelling of Aladdin and the Magic Lamp, the story from the Arabian Nights. Yeah. But Eisner did not think that a story set in the Middle East would have any appeal. <laughs> um, so once again, as we see from Rescuers Down Under, uh, racism continues to triumph at the <laughs> Disney headquarters. Obviously, Aladdin will end up happening. But in the meantime, Katzenberg has them drop work on that movie and persuades them instead to move to Beauty and the Beast. Yep. Now, Beauty and the Beast was something that Walt himself had considered doing for very obvious reasons, right? I mean, it's a fairy tale perfectly in the Disney mold, but he was dissuaded in part because uh, Jean Cocteau had done a 1946 version, La Belle et la Bête, which is an absolutely magnificent, wonderful movie. Um, and it was, of course, also very critically and commercially successful. So in the 30s, 40s, even 50s, he didn't want to, you know, compete with that. Right. He would just be accused of copying. <laughs> yeah. And he was whatever, more interested in other things. Uh, but Disney had really picked it up in 1987 because they had to add on new animation studios for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the very successful movie that is a big part of why Disney animation continued to exist and was released in part to be a like, hey, remember how much you guys love animation? Let's make a movie about how cool animation is. So, you know, to get people hyped for Disney animation. Right. And so they had to set up a new satellite animation studio in, well, I mean, they set up a lot of studios in a lot of places, but relevant to this story is they set one up in London, England, and that's where they decided to have them start developing the Beauty and the Beast story. They'd been working on it for about a year, but nobody liked it. Uh, it really didn't work. And so Katzenberg convinced Ashman and Mencken to get on the case, and they pretty much threw out every single thing that had been worked on. Didn't I see that they then only had a couple of years to 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 make it because they had to throw out everything that had been done previously? Yeah, I mean, they started in 89 and it came out in 91. So, yeah, this was made pretty darn quick. Yeah, pretty crazy. Once again, Ashman really kind of took the lead here. You know, he wrote the songs and the movie was kind of written around it. Uh, although because of the tight schedule, they had to make it really quickly. But he, you know, came up with a lot of the ideas that would make it into the final movie. Uh, he made it much happier and lighter. He really worked on the character of Beast. He is credited with making Gaston into the character that he was mm -hmm. and trying to make him, uh, quote, from Disney War by James B. Stewart, a muscular, square-jawed, even sexy suitor whose handsome surface and grossly sexist prejudices made him the psychological opposite of the beast. <laughs> Disney War continues, from an animation standpoint, Ashman had the strikingly original idea to turn the inanimate objects of the beast's kitchen and dining room into characters. Now, let me back up a bit there. 
The aforementioned 1946 movie is actually uh, the first really major version of Beauty and the Beast that introduces the uh, animate, inanimate objects, you know, the servants being turned into those things. I'm not 100% sure if the servants are turned into the things in that or if it's just the castle is enchanted and things move around on their own. Right. It's been a little bit since I watched it, but still, it's definitely... Inspired by that movie. Yes, I don't think in that movie it's specifically uh, the servants have been turned into that and they don't really have personalities. And so that is what this Disney movie adds. That movie also introduces the idea of the beast having, you know, a rival suitor. Mm-hmm. But the rival in that is, you know, kind of lame and, and slightly foppish, as I recall. Mm-hmm. He is certainly not guessed on. That no. So, you know, Ashman did a lot and invented, you know, many of the specific character types and, of course, wrote all these excellent, excellent songs. I uh, really defined the story and tone of the movie, but it's not completely original. One thing that I do want to talk about is that shortly after or possibly even during uh, the like final production on The Little Mermaid, Ashman found out that he had AIDS. Uh, AIDS for our younger listeners being a disease that gay men are particularly susceptible to and were particularly susceptible to at the time. There was actually a uh, massive epidemic that the government was not doing anything about. And so there were huge numbers of people dying from it. Essentially, an entire generation of gay men wiped out. It's incredibly tragic stuff. Um, And Howard Ashman was unfortunately a victim of this self-same epidemic. He was very sick during the making of this movie, and they actually moved a lot of the production to be closer to his house so he could participate in it more. Um, And he died about eight months before it came out, which is why there is a dedication to him in the credits, and which is why He started working on Aladdin, but the final songs had to be finished by a different lyricist. Mm -hmm. And again, it is truly a tragic loss. You know, you have to think, what would Disney have been with Ashman continuing to work on it? Even though there are obviously many great movies after him. It's, you know, he was kind of just getting started, right? He'd had Little Shop of Horrors as a kind of a cult success and then these couple of movies as his big breakout. And who knows, even outside of Disney, what he might have gone on and done. So, again, uh, another tragic casualty of this uh, awful, awful epidemic and awful disease. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, the last movie where he was able to that he was able to completely um, finish. Yeah, I mean, he they wrote all the songs once again. One of his favorite songs was Human Again, a song that got cut It was re-added for the Broadway musical version uh, again because, as we talked about with Little Mermaid, Mencken worked on that and he was like, I want my dead friend's song to be in the musical. Yeah. Human Again was a song that the servants sing about Beauty and the Beast's relationship. Mm -hmm. It was cut for various reasons. This movie went through a lot of changes, mainly because of... replaced it with something there which is a much better song let's be honest it's funny because on the the blu-ray version you mentioned we technically i think actually on the 2002 dvd release they animated 
a new sequence. I always thought this was a deleted scene. It's not. It's a whole new animated sequence to put human again back into the movie. They actually did it for the IMAX version. Oh, that's what it was for. So when they converted it to IMAX, they added in human again and animated stuff for it. Right. That's why it is then also on the DVD and Blu-ray as an option. And it's a fine song, but it just doesn't fit well in that part of the movie. It just kind of drags. Controversially, I like it. I kind of wish that I kind of prefer the version with that sequence, mainly just because that's what we owned on home video first. So that's what I remember better. But I like the idea of the servants having a song. I mean, I'll talk about what I think of the servant characters in this movie. But yeah, I mean, look, something there is a way better song and a way better sequence. (laughs) And so it's. It's hard to argue with. Um, One thing Ashman got, you know, because he did have a little more power on this uh, because Katzenberg was like, you know, we need Ashman. He's a big part of the reason Little Mermaid was good. So one of the things that he got was the opening sequence, the song just called Bell, where he got the big musical Broadway style opening he really wanted for Little Mermaid with Fathoms Below and was not allowed to get because of budget reasons. <laughs> Belle actually goes on for a full seven minutes, which was unheard of at the time. <laughs> so that was uh, a very big deal for him and a big get. And it is, you know, it's a great sequence. It doesn't feel long at all. It's so necessary. And uh, the directors who were appointed to work on this were Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, as mentioned. Uh, Now, Wise had worked on The Brave Little Toaster, and both of them had worked on a few different Disney movies, uh, Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company. Uh, They both got kicked off of Rescuers Down Under because they complained about... Taking out the indigenous character and uh, replacing it with a little white boy, as we talked about last week. And so, again, they were like, all right, you're kicked off of the rescuers down under. You have to go direct Beauty and the Beast. That'll show them. (laughs) Trousdale had not worked on The Brave Little Toaster and is thus worse, but he joined Disney a little later. He started with The Black Cauldron uh, and they both worked together on Cranium Command, which was an attraction in Epcot, sort of an educational attraction like many of the ones in Epcot about the brain. Yep. Which was directed by Jerry Reese. I can't remember if we actually mentioned that in the Brave Little Toaster episode, that that's what he kind of went on to do. After the failure of the Brave Little Toaster, he started directing park attractions. Um, And there's an opening animated bit that was animated, uh, that was directed rather, and I think in large part animated by Wise and Trousdale. Now, Did you ever get to go see Cranium Command? I did indeed get to ride that ride when I went to Walt Disney World in 1992. What did you think of it? I'm pretty sure it was okay. I did not love a lot of the rides in Epcot in the future world part. Well, they're not very good is the thing. They're all so educational and, you know, I just wanted to have fun. Right. (laughs) Can I go ride Star Tours another five times? (laughs) But I don't remember it being terrible. I It's been too long, so I don't remember exactly what it was. I didn't watch like a, a video of it. I actually watched a video of it, um, and I thought that it, it was actually pretty interesting, pretty funny. I liked the opening animated bit a lot. Maybe just biased because it's Jerry Rees, but <laughs> <laughs> also original score by David Newman, 
and John Lovitz does a voice on it. So it really is a Brave Little Toaster reunion. Wise was apparently the one who had the idea of the narrator of it being an Arlie Ermey-esque drill sergeant saying, quote, we thought it would be funny if the character who is supposed to teach you how to manage your stress screamed at you incessantly like a psychotic drill sergeant. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's pretty funny. Then, of course, they were moved from that to again, they were working on Rescuers Down Under and they eventually go work on Beauty and the Beast. Uh, They wanted Musker and Clements to work on Beauty and the Beast, but instead they go do Aladdin because, again, everything's being made pretty much at the same time. Right. And it did seem like a lot of the things was like, okay, Little Mermaid was so great. Let's get as much the same back as we can. Exactly. The same directors. No. okay, we'll have these other guys. Uh, We're definitely getting Ashman and Mencken. It doesn't matter if they want to do something else. And there was even talk of having Jody Benson come and do Belle, which I'm like, "Mm, so glad they didn't go that way. Yes. It's like, okay, something's the same as okay, but you gotta mix it up. (laughs) There's a great interview with Wise and Trousdale uh, that Collider has. It's called Collider Connected Legendary Directors Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale on Crafting Disney Classics, and they mostly talk about Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting to me that these two guys had kind of a, uh, a Musker and Clements-esque arc where they do this. Obviously, it's a huge success. They do Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is, uh, you know, mild success. And then they got to do their weird passion project, which was Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which was a huge failure. But it seems like in general, Wise and Trousdale were not as much of company men as Musker and Clements. Uh, they weren't, you know, they would get into fights more with Katzenberg and anyone else. Again, they got fired from Rescuers Down Under. <laughs> and so after Treasure Planet fails, Musker and Clements get to do more stuff. These two guys seem like they pretty much were done. Wise didn't really do much after this. He's listed as like creative consultant on a couple things and produced some things. Really, the only other thing of note he did was being the uh, voice director for the English dub of Spirited Away. Other than that, he he pretty much checked out. Trousdale would get hired by Katzenberg and he would hop over to DreamWorks where he'd work on the Madagascar films and Flushed Away and the direct-to-video Shrek sequels and Kung Fu Panda and, you know, all kinds of bad stuff, all the way up until 2014's Bad Mr. Peabody and Sherman. (laughs) Uh, So really, the three Disney films are what these guys are known for, but they're interesting guys, and again, that interview with them, it's a video, it's an hour long, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to hear how they worked with Ashman, and they were actually more willing to push back on his ideas than some of the other people who are like, he just made the Little Mermaid. He could do no wrong. (laughs) Productively, I mean, they have a lot of great things to say about him. But for example, Ashman was like, well, Beast is the protagonist. He's the one who undergoes the most change, teehee, over the course of the story. It should really focus on him. And they were like, no, this is a love story and they should be equal protagonists. Apparently, they just kept saying it's literally the title, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, but uh, it's it's really interesting to hear about their process. They're two interesting guys. And obviously, they made this great movie. And I think they're really good directors and they bring really good uh, ideas to it. So I didn't know as much about them. But now I do. <laughs> Obviously, the most interesting animation thing was the use of caps 
and specifically the use of CGI in the ballroom sequence, which is, you know, 100% CGI with 2D characters drawn on top of it. The cameras move digitally. And this is often cited as, you know, oh, this is the first movie to use caps in a major way. Not true, as we know. No. Go back and listen to last week's episode. Rescuers Down Under was, of course, the first real Caps movie. Oh, but everybody forgets about that one. Yes, and everybody remember. Even I, before we were doing this series, I was like, is it the Beauty and the Beast ballroom scene, the first actual CGI objects in a Disney movie? No, the first CGI objects are that terrible-looking New York. (laughs) I was not planning to talk about all the story changes and stuff. You can, Mom, if there's anything specific you want to bring up. Obviously, Katzenberg had a bunch of notes and changed a bunch of stuff and mostly made bad decisions. His most famous comment was complaining about uh, the ceiling during the aforementioned uh, ballroom sequence, where he said, quote, fix the ceiling, make it French like Botticelli. Botticelli, as you can guess by the name, is quite Italian. Yeah. Uh, and so French like Botticelli became a running joke <laughs> in the in the Disney offices because basically the animators were openly making fun of Katzenberg. There's a documentary on Disney Plus, Waking Sleeping Beauty, that you can see where they show some of the mean drawings and caricatures they would make of Katzenberg. And one of the guys who liked doing that the most was Kirk Weiss. <laughs> so again, you can see why... He got to make three movies. Right. And then it was released and it was a massive, massive success. Yep. uh, Critically and commercially. Every time it's been released on home video, it's been like one of the best selling uh, home videos Mm -hmm. of its release. Like it was one of the best selling Blu-rays ever, one of the best selling 4Ks ever, etc. And of course, this movie was nominated for many Academy Awards, including... Best Picture. Yeah. It was the first animated movie, I believe, nominated for Best Picture. A lot of people will say, you know, oh, Beauty and the Beast should have won Best Picture in in 92. It only didn't win because they didn't want to give it to an animated movie. Maybe. uh, The Academy Awards definitely are biased against animated movies to some extent, especially those not made by Disney, by the way. (laughs) We were looking at it, you and I, and we were like, a lot of great movies came out this year. The winner is Silence of the Lambs, which is pretty hard to begrudge. Like, that was a pretty darn good movie. (laughs) Even my favorite movie of all time, Until the End of the World, technically came out this year, (laughs) although in a, like, half-finished version that nobody liked. The director's version that was actually good came out in 2015, so it depends how you want to count it. But (laughs) yeah, you know, it's still interesting that it got nominated, of course, and it broke the Disney executives' brains in a big bag way. And it did win for Best Original Song, right? I believe it won Song and Score, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And part of the Song and Score win is, of course, uh, because... Ashman was dead by the time these Oscars came around and they wanted to honor him with a posthumous win. Not saying he didn't deserve it, but saying that, you know, the Oscars 
love doing that. If you're dead, that's a great way to win an Oscar, which is a weird thing to say. Well, that would be for the for the song, but not the score, because he didn't have anything to do with the score. That was Alan Menken. Right, but still, you know, three of the, like, five song nominations were from this movie. I'm just saying. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not saying it wasn't deserved. Um, and Beauty and the Beast winning, I think they actually picked the right song this time, as opposed to Little Mermaid, <laughs> Under the Sea. I don't know. Obviously good for him. Yep. Not begrudging a dead man his <laughs> Oscar. And a lot of people will will say that it's, you know, the greatest animated film of all time to this day. Even Chuck Jones, uh, the famous, you know, Looney Tunes, Warner Brothers animation legend, said that it was one of the greatest pieces of animation he'd ever seen. Like it was mm-hmm. it was absolutely beloved. It cemented Disney as an animation powerhouse. And again, the best picture nomination I would say defines the rest of the Renaissance era as Eisner and Katzenberg and Wells become obsessed with trying to actually get that award for an animated movie. Yeah. Mom, do you want to take us through the cast? Sure. We have a lot of uh, Broadway stars in this cast, unsurprisingly, for the most Broadway movie we've had so far. Even though Little Mermaid is kind of in that style, this one is you know, ratcheted up. So Robbie Benson plays the beast and he was mainly doing Broadway before this. And after this, (laughs) he is quite good in it, but there were a lot of other interesting actors considered. Mandy Patinkin's beast would have been really interesting. Lawrence Fishburne's beast would have been really interesting. Yeah, but he is good. He is. And Paige O'Hara does Belle. And she is Belle forever, like Jodie Benson is Ariel forever. She actually did not. There's a a major spinoff that she did not come back for. But yes, she did it for many, many things. It's true. She's she's done it for a lot of things. And she also is has the Broadway background. They picked her because they wanted someone who sounded more like a woman and less like a girl than Jodie Benson. They said, yeah, because Ariel is supposed to be 16 and Belle, I'm pretty sure, is supposed to be about 18. Yeah, 18, 19. I don't know if they say somebody probably knows. But yeah, that's that's the vibe you get. That was always the impression I had from like when it originally came out was that she's supposed to be older than Ariel. Richard White is Gaston. There's something that you and I, a video game you and I have both played that he does a voice in. Did you know? Uh, No, do tell. He's in the new King's Quest video game from 2015 as Whisper. Ah, there you go. That game is really, really good. It is really good. And now that I think about it, I'm like, how did I not realize Whisper's voice is the same as Gaston's? Because you can hear it. And yeah, I mean, Richard White is Gaston, like... Just perfect. Just nails it. What can you say? Jesse Corti as LeFou. We will hear him again in Zootopia. LeFou, which means the crazy. Yep. Or the idiot or the fool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also invented for this movie. Subtle, subtle. Yes. Gotta have, gotta have the... uh, The stupid hench person. Yes. So Gaston has to have the dumb hench. His animation style is... So cartoony. He's very much a Mr. Smee. Yeah, he looks ridiculous. He's, a you know, the size of Gaston's like head, you know, (laughs) and the height of his knee. (laughs) Right. Angela Lansbury, of course, as Mrs. Potts. 
She is the first one who had been an actress for forever. She was an actress since the 40s in so many different movies and TV. Early on, she was the, you know, she was the love interest in things. She was the beautiful woman. And then as she got older, she did a bunch of other different roles. I always remembered her best from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yep. But of course, she's also very famous for the TV show Murder, She Wrote. And she still does stuff, both in movies and in plays. It's ridiculous. Like during this time, for about 1990 to 2000, she just did voice work because, you know, oh, she's so old, you know, (laughs) that's one thing you can do as an older actor is move into that. And then she came back and started doing movies again. Yep. Ah, Lansbury can't be stopped. And she really didn't want to sing the Beauty and the Beast song. She was like, bringing in another singer. I've never been known for my singing. I mean, she could sing. She sings in, you know, Bedknobs and Broomsticks and some other stuff. But she never thought her voice was great. So they they told her, do at least one take. You know, do one take. Do your best. Do it however you want. And she had everybody in tears. And that's what you hear in the movie. That's the final cut. (laughs) Like they just needed the one take. It was amazing. And it is amazing. I mean, Mm -hmm. you need Angela Lansbury in this role, even for most of the movie. It's such a small kind of thankless role for that moment. You need Angela Lansbury. Right. And a couple other places where she's the heart. Jerry Orbach as Lumiere. He was also apparently on Murder, She Wrote, like a regular. David Ogden Stiers as Cogsworth. He came back for several Disney movies and he has done many narrator roles as well. But basically, I tend to think of him as, you know, we had several actors who were like, and they're back for another Disney movie and they're back for another Disney movie back, you know, in the silver and bronze era. He's that for the Renaissance era. I always forget that he's Jumba in Lilo and Stitch. It's wild. Uh Uh-huh. And he's the villain in Pocahontas. If you say so. (laughs) (laughs) Bradley Pierce is a child actor who did the voice of Chip. And he's also Peter in the Jumanji movie. Interesting. Not that interesting, but a little interesting. I mean, it's a little interesting. I've seen that movie a ton of times and I never realized it was the same guy. Anybody else you want to bring up specifically? Those were the main people that I found. Oh, actually, there is one other thing I want to mention real quick, which is that Kimmy Robertson is the feather duster. If you uh, listeners are like me, a huge fan of the television show Twin Peaks, that's Lucy. (laughs) I never knew that Lucy (laughs) is the feather duster. That's quite funny. Any other background stuff you wanted to go over? No, let's go ahead and uh, get into this here movie. Let's just take the mom status from the top. Dead, dead, dead. No moms in this movie. (laughs) They're all gone. (laughs) So we were talking about this while watching it. This prologue muddles the movie so much and so unnecessarily in a lot of ways. One of which being, what what happened with his parents? Yeah. So it starts off with kind of a forest scene and you are like moving up towards the big castle. And you do see, I guess briefly, you see a deer who looks like they've just grab Bambi's mother again and chucked her in there. (laughs) They probably did. (laughs) They're like, hey, we haven't had a Bambi reference in forever. Probably not really. It's Bambi in almost every movie. So then you get to the castle and the, I believe it is David Ogden Stiers being the narrator for this bit as well. Cause you know, narrator man. 
And you see the backstory told in stained glass windows as opposed to a storybook. It is David Ogden as the narrator. By the way, are you sure it's Steers? Because I always thought it was Steers. No, it could be Steers. I have no idea. I'm sorry. There you go. We've at least acknowledged the controversy, so don't tweet at us. Anyway, uh, David Ogden Toy Story is indeed narrating this section. (laughs) And yeah, there's so many things here that... If you think about it, it's like, so how come all the servants got punished for his mistake? And also, if you do the math, right, they say that it's his 21st birthday when the rose dies and it's 10 years. It says the rose is going to bloom until his 21st year. And then later, Lumiere is singing, you know, 10 years we've been resting in the Be Our Guest song. So you think, so wait a minute, has it been 10 years that they since the curse came to be so was he 11 when he was cursed you can trust an 11 year old boy you can expect him to be you know a grown-up except when you see the painting of the prince it's obviously a grown young man prince that has you know the the painting that's been all slashed yeah it's not a child so they basically they threw in a couple of words and phrases that after people were like now wait a minute They're not in the musical. They're not in any of the, you know, the live action remake. They took these bits out because it made people go now. This doesn't make sense. So he probably is about 21 when he's cursed and everybody is like frozen in time. They don't give any good explanation of why his servants are cursed. And this is why I don't like the human again song, because it makes me think about that even more. They're all singing about how wonderful it'll be. It'll be when the curse is broken and they can be human again. And I then think about even more. Why are they cursed in the first place? What did they do? That seems really cruel of the sorceress to have cursed the entire castle. And so that's why I don't like having that song in the movie. On the other hand, though, Beast in this acts so much like a beast and has so little understanding of like basic social norms. I feel like that part actually makes more sense if he was cursed as an 11 year old. Yeah, I think you had the good fix for this when we were watching it, which is you mentioned that in the original story, it's not a witch uh, who's trying to like teach him a lesson. Right. It's an evil witch. You know, it's a Maleficent type Yeah, that fixes the whole thing. If it's an evil witch, then of course she cursed all the servants. And of course she was like, oh, an 11 year old boy wasn't perfectly respectful to me. Curses all around. Like, yeah. And that's, you know, that's just an easy fix. My excuse for this, I suspect they were just working on this so quickly that they weren't like doing a ton of continuity work. I mean, they were finishing animation right up to the deadline. Yeah. Having realized, I never really paid attention to the fact how rushed this one was. Two years is an insanely short time to do one of these movies, especially as fancy as it is. It's amazing how good this movie is. That's the power of throwing money at it. So the fact that there's a couple of continuity errors and things they should have either left out or done a throwaway explanation line because, you know, one or two things could have You could have easily explained it away. I give them a little bit of grace for that. (laughs) And then we have the beautiful title, of course, Beauty and the Beast. And then they end the narration with who could ever learn to love a beast? 
And then we have the song Belle, because, you know, obviously she's the answer to the question. Bonjour, 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 bonjour. Yes. So Belle leaves her cottage and walks into the town and everybody's saying, you know, good morning. There goes Belle singing her daily mean song about us. <laughs> there goes the baker with his tray like always. I have to feed kids, Belle. I'm sorry, we can't all just... Live with our crazy dad, read books. Yeah. So she's complaining about the, the fact that it's a poor provincial town and she doesn't really like living there. So she's complaining about them. They're complaining about how weird she is. And again, very, you know, Broadway style. We're singing a song. but Very we, Broadway. We're, we're walking through the town and all singing, but it's not exactly like we can hear each other. And but there's also just normal morning stuff going on. People, you know, buying, selling, talking. Yep. We pause for talking. Yes, exactly. Pauses. We meet all the characters such as bookseller, a.k.a. book giver aware. Book loaner. He lets her borrow the books and read them. And then when she brings her book back, he just gives her her favorite. Apparently he doesn't need money. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> oh, this is my favorite one. It has no cover or title or named characters. <laughs> so we also, of course, meet Gaston and LeFou. And Gaston is slimy from the beginning. There goes the baker with his tray like. <laughs> He's also making fun of them. <laughs> he doesn't know the word baker, so he's just like, there goes the bread guy with his stuff like <laughs> usual. Gaston is introduced basically by... I am going to marry Belle. And LeFou's like, oh, why do you want to marry her? Because she's the most beautiful. Therefore, she's the best. And I deserve the best. We'll make beautiful children. (laughs) Gaston is a really great character. Again, in Disney War, Ashman is credited with uh, a lot of his conception. Katzenberg credits Katzenberg with a lot of his conception. Of Who can say? <laughs> I mean, but he's, you know, he's one of the most interesting Disney villains because he is, though still, you know, being a cackling maniac in some regards, he is realistic. He's a guy everyone yeah. knows. He's a guy that, you know, has never been more in the cultural consciousness than now. Like Mm. it's very patriarchal. It's a lot of interesting themes. And that's part of, you know, some of this movie, the character of Belle especially was a reaction in part to, you know, people being like, oh, Disney doesn't have strong female characters. You know, all their women are just like rescued by men. And so they're like, we'll show you, we'll make Pretty much the exact same character, but now she can read. She doesn't have to get rescued much. We pretty much have to wait to Moana to have a princess who has like a lot of agency and is truly the main character of her own story. Also, we referred to Belle as a princess. Not exactly a princess, but she is not a princess until she marries her prince. Right. She is going to be a princess, but she is part of the Disney princess line because she does marry a prince. My girlfriend, who, as I mentioned, always identified closely with Belle, like this was a movie that was very important to her. She hated and like still hates Gaston so much because (laughs) he thinks a girl shouldn't read and he's, you know, so patriarchal. And she's like still mad about it in a really funny (laughs) way. But he's the villain. That's good that he's the villain that I love. Exactly. He's that he is, you know, so 
chauvinistic and is portrayed as the villain. Right. The fact that they made a good looking man be the villain, you know, to contrast with the beast who ends up being the good guy. I think it really works. I agree. And they did remember, take a bit of his style from Brom, right? From Ichabod and Mr. Toad, this legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yes. He's not exactly like that, of course, because Brom wasn't nearly as bad as Gaston. But there's some inspiration, definitely. Well, they I don't think they would have realized Gaston was a bad guy in the 40s. They would have been like, well, of course. He is entitled to the most beautiful woman. <laughs> uh, but no, that, you know, Gaston is one of those things that makes this movie a richer story than a lot of Disney movies. Right. While also still being fun. That's the thing. Like the, you know, Frozen will try once again to have the, you know, oh, handsome, charismatic man who doesn't respect women is the villain. But I think that that character is very boring. Gaston is able to be that while still being the kind of Disney villain energy you want. He has a fun song. He's funny. He has a, you know, dopey sidekick. I love it. Okay, sorry. Now we can move on to crazy old Maurice. Yeah. Uh, Belle's father is an inventor. He's an eccentric inventor. And he's working on his steam powered wood chopper and he's taking his invention to the fair, a fair somewhere. We don't know where, but the main thing is he's traveling through the spooky woods because I got to We got to get this story started. Yep, it really feels like they kind of worked backwards from the fairy tale of like, okay, so her dad gets lost in the woods and wanders into a castle. He must be a pretty absent minded guy. And then they kind of worked from there to build the character, I think. It's possible. He is a very absent minded guy. His horse, who is your classic Disney, you know, presumably a a grandchild of Philip's horse and a, you know, father of uh, of Maximus, maybe, or somehow related. But he's (laughs) in the grand tradition of Disney horses who are smarter than their riders. Mm -hmm. Most horses being smarter than Maurice. And he does not want to go down the evil path of murder. He would like to go down the nice path of, of fun and good times. But no, Maurice is like, let's go towards the creepy, misty, spooky path and ignore the pleasant path. One of those things in this movie that like doesn't make too much sense if you think about it uh, is where is the castle in relation to the provincial town? Because sometimes it seems very close and yet nobody knows there's an enchanted castle there. We came up with a good explanation for this, which is that nobody other than Maurice has been stupid enough to go down the scary dark path of obvious murder. (laughs) I will say that is one of the reasons that like, I enjoy Sleeping Beauty better than this movie. Sleeping Beauty is so abstract and magical Mm -hmm. that I never catch myself thinking about the logic of it. I know some people do. Yeah. Whereas this, because it is more plotty and more, you know, as we said, like Gaston is a pretty grounded villain. He's not magical or pure evil. He's, you know, a slightly more exaggerated version of a jerk you definitely knew in college. It makes you think about these things a little more. It does, which is partly why this movie was my favorite for a while. But as I've gotten older, it is less my favorite because I can't help but think about it more. So then, of course, Maurice gets chased by wolves and he ends up at the Beast's castle. His horse runs off and will eventually find Belle. And 
We do meet Lumiere and Cogsworth, though Maurice doesn't really recognize them for what they are, that they're alive. But he does find like a fire to sit by and a chair. And he does start see some of the um, enchanted stuff like the footstool dog and the tea set with Mrs. Potts and Chip. And everyone is very welcoming to Maurice, except for Cogsworth, because Cogsworth is always the one who is like, you know, the master is going to hate this. I love Cogsworth. He just makes me laugh the most. And he is right about most things. And he has a lot of anxiety. I don't know what it is. Cogsworth is a long time favorite of mine. You know, I can't relate to Lumiere at all. He's he's way too confident. Um, <laughs> I also do love that the witch apparently had a sense of humor and changed everybody into something that would be funny with their unrelated last name. Or that they basically had last names that kind of applied to their jobs in a bit. The Beast, of course, then does show up and is very angry. So Maurice is then thrown into the tower dungeon. So then um, the next scene is Gaston has set up a wedding for himself and Belle without having actually proposed to her because he's so confident in himself. Maybe Gaston at his least likable during this sequence, you know, the way he talks to her. But it is still a really funny scene. Oh, it is. I mean, yes, he's horrible. He's just the worst. But at least Belle doesn't even remotely fall for it. The craziest thing he says in this sequence to me is when he talks about her having six or seven boys. Yep. Just having six or seven kids. And of course, they all have to be boys because he hates women so much. Yeah. She throws him into the mud, which is what makes him more desirous of that makes him go like, well, now I have to have her because she's the one who I couldn't have, which is exactly how these guys think. Like, again, the thing about Gaston is that I've met Gaston's. Everyone has. And that is absolutely how these guys are. Yep. And this is one of my favorite Belle moments is when she sings Madame Gaston and like mockingly, you know, yeah, flutters yeah. her eyelids like you can imagine the movement in your head. And she's like, no way. <laughs> yes. Uh, and this is also this is the moment you mentioned where she's on the field, which feels very much like they are trying to do the Little Mermaid, you know, the scene where she reprises her song and she's on the rock and there's a huge wave behind her. And it's that transcendent moment. And it is an amazing moment, but it's not quite the same. No, this is not nearly as effective as that, in my opinion, but it's still good. I feel like this is her main I want moment because, you know, right. she specifically says I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. Right. And she wants someone who can understand her and know her for who she really is and not just, you know, Gaston has only wants her for her looks. <laughs> so pretty quickly, Belle, you know, the horse is there. She rides him to the castle and she trades herself for her dad. Again, it's all very, very quick. Um, her papa is kind of sick, so she offers to take his place. And the beast sends Maurice away without her really even getting to say goodbye. Beast, and he really starts to show it here, is an incredibly well-written character. They have a real problem with him, which is that he has to be monstrous, you know, and he has to do all these bad things up front. And then somehow you have to like him and buy him as a romantic lead. 
Glenn Keane animated almost all of the beast in this movie. And I think it's a good call to be like, we need our best animator on this uh, because it's a really tricky needle to thread. It's a really tricky voice performance uh, and it's a really tricky script. And I think it works. This character specifically works in large part because Howard Ashman like cared about him so much and saw him as the main character. And the one thing he really connected to was the beast wanting love, not just because it'll break the curse, but because he's clearly a sad, lonely guy and feeling like, well, I'll never find it. I'll never be able to have love. I think that does tie into Howard Ashman being a gay man at the time in which he lived, you know, I think that that was something he was able to connect to. Not saying that Beast in this is supposed to be, you know, gay, obviously, but I think that's part of how he found this connection to that character and that sense of yearning. Because even here, right, he's done all this horrible stuff. He's basically been mm-hmm. a pure villain up to this point, and he immediately, we have to start establishing the humanity in him as he's like, leading Belle around the castle. His servants are trying to tell him to be a little nicer. And he's like, you know, and he's going to show Belle to a room and not just keep her locked up in the dungeon. You could go everywhere you want, except the West Wing. It's again, a really complex character uh, that I have a ton of respect that they are able to pull it off this effectively. Uh, And the visual design as well. Again, he can be scary, but he's also kind of a big dog sometimes. It's yeah. Then we have the Gaston song in the tavern, which is full of his hunting trophies. Kind of feels like it's his place. This was at one point definitely my favorite scene of the movie. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so even though like I feel like this song especially like has almost been parodied and done and redone and referenced almost to death. But even just watching it a couple nights ago, it's like, this is still funny. So much of the posing, um, this was uh, a guy we talked about before, particularly on the uh, Black Cauldron episode, Andreas Deha, or Dea, I think is how I decided to pronounce it there, was the lead animator on Gaston. And it's just so good. The song is so good. After they're interrupted by Maurice yelling about the beast, the the party goes, the foo, I'm afraid I've been thinking. A dangerous pastime? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is such a great line, (laughs) which is something that I have quoted and made jokes about since I first saw this movie. Oh, yeah. In the early 90s. It's a great quotable moment. The thing about him eating all the eggs, the thing about him being the size of a barge. And being able to lift the bench with all three of the girls on it. Because, of course, any other girl in this town would marry Gaston. And then so he has his evil plan, but we don't actually get to know exactly what it is yet. Which, appropriate to Gaston, I actually like that his evil plan is not very complex because Gaston is not a guy who's... A, who's capable of complex thought. B, this is not the kind of guy who needs to think very complexly. The world hands everything to him. Why wouldn't it hand him this? Then we're back at the castle and Mrs. Potts visits Belle in her room and introduces herself and Chip, the, her little, the little cup, and the wardrobe. Chip blows bubbles in himself, which is disgusting. <laughs> 
Belle um, refuses to go to supper with the beast, even though he demanded it of her. His The servants were like, invite her to dinner. And he's like, you will join me for dinner. I mean, even if he was grown when the curse went into effect, it's been several years. He has only been around his servants. Anything he knew about how to interact with other people has been lost. This is a really funny moment with Cogsworth, though it's really the animation that sells it, which is Cogsworth, you know, beating around the bush and finally going, she's not coming. Cut, beat, what? (laughs) And of course, Lumiere and Mrs. Potts keep telling the beast not to lose his temper, but he doesn't listen. After he loses his temper, we do see that he kind of is, you know, feels bad about it. And he looks in the mirror at Belle. He has the magic mirror and it will show whatever, you know, you say to it, show me this, which is another element they took from the uh, La Bella La Bette, having a mirror that will show what you ask to see. And he sees Belle complaining about, you know, how horrible and cranky he is. And he's like, Why am I even trying? Why am I even trying with this girl? I can't. There's no way I'll ever win her, even if I can control my temper. But in the middle of the night, Belle leaves her room and gets because she gets hungry and she gets to meet everyone else because I don't think she's really met Lumiere and Cogsworth that much at this point. And we have the whole Be Our Guest song. This is also where we see Lumiere making out with the feather duster before be our guest. This is also where Cogsworth offers, okay, fine. She needs to eat glass of water, crust of bread. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, okay, fine. You can make her a real meal. Like he keeps, you know, being like outbid and he's like, okay, fine. We can make her a real meal, but be cool. And then Lumia's like, of course, of course, of course, of course. But what is dinner? What's that music? (laughs) Yes. Cogsworth keeps trying to keep everything under control to not aggravate the beast, but everybody else is like, eh, we might as well do whatever we want. He's just going to get angry anyway. <laughs> and I think what makes this dynamic funny, because I've seen the spinoffs now, and they kind of just make Cogsworth into a scold, which is one of my least favorite character archetypes in movies, is the character who's just like yelling at the movie, stop being fun. Like, that sucks. I hate it. In this It works, again, I think because Cogsworth is pretty much, you know, right about things, or at least like, you know, you get why he's like, hey, let's not wake up the beast. He's the beast. Right. I'm a clock. He could crush me. My pieces are always falling out as it is. And, you know, Lumiere being like, oh, I am stupid and reckless. And he's like, please don't be. Please, please, please. Like they have a great dynamic in this movie. Yeah, I mean, be our guest. It's really good. It's a great song. It's an amazing, big musical extravaganza. I always laugh because it looks like she gets almost nothing to eat, even though, you know, she was hungry. We'll just have to assume that whenever we're focused on Lumiere and all the rest of the stuff going on, she's eating where we can't see. Poor girl, she needs some food. I'm just going to throw this out real quick. All right, here's Isaac's annoying SJW take of the episode. It's really annoying that their take on the servant characters is, well, they love serving. You know, that's what the lower classes want is they 
They want to be servants. This is good for them. That sucks. That's not how it works. All right, I'm done. These characters are fun. <laughs> that is the only thing I don't like about this excellent number is that it's specifically like, oh, thank goodness we've been waiting for a master because human beings love having masters. It's like, yuck, mm-hmm. yuck. OK, that's it. That's the entire SJW corner. Uh, and then, you know, now that we've had that bit with the servant who's not serving and we've had technically dinner and somehow the beast has not been woken up. Now Cogsworth takes us on a tour of the castle and I, there's something so endearing to me about his stupid little if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it joke. And then how he laughs at himself <laughs> like, yes, like I can tell a joke. That's always been one of my favorite little moments is that he thinks he's as funny and charming as Lumiere. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Belle keeps trying to wander off into the West Wing, which she's been warned away from by the Beast. And then they also warn her away from it. I, this is one of those moments where I'm like, somebody should say, those are the beast's rooms. Don't go poking around in his rooms. Would you like it if somebody was poking around in your personal room? Yeah. <laughs> but they don't say. And of course, she's curious and adventurous. Yes. Yeah. It's a little annoying that she's been here for hours and she's already like, oh, there's only one rule. I'm a break it. I'm break it. Right. <laughs> I mean, she is a prisoner, so you could say, you know, she's it's fine. Justified in trying things out. But anyway, they do discover she's very interested in the library, even though as they walk off to show her the library, she sneaks off into the West Wing. A rare moment of Cogsworth Lumiere solidarity. Yeah, I love the two of their dynamic together. I don't think I like one more than the other. I like the pair of them together. Right. So in, of course, she does explore the Beast's room, which is all trashed because he's broken everything in his frustrations. And she does see a painting that has been slashed up that looks like it could potentially. I mean, it what it is, is what the Beast looked like before he was cursed. Then she sees the magical rose. And of course, it's the only thing in the room that's not destroyed. And it's beautiful and it's floating and it's in a glass cloche. And of course, she goes and takes the cover off and she almost touches it. But then the beast finds her and he is freaking out because she almost touched the magical rose that controls his fate. And so he loses his temper even more and scares her. And he says, get out. And so she takes that to mean I am leaving the entire castle. (laughs) Even though there's a snowstorm, she gets Philippe, her horse, and leaves. She feels like she's going to get eat. Right. And he's freaking out because she almost, maybe if she touched it, the petals would have fallen faster. Who knows? Yeah, they they get into... This in the in the sequels as well, where what they decide there is that, you know, if you are to if you destroy the rose, then the curse is just instantly permanent. It's all very stupid. But yeah, yeah. But of course, it's it's not stupid here. And again, like Keen is such a good animator. He's so good at drawing the beast as he's able to draw the beast as a monster here. Um, And then as a heroic monster in this great sequence that uh, we think he's largely responsible for in this awesome wolf action scene. Yes, because, of course, the wolves are chasing Belle 
and Philippe. And there's a whole big chase, including some falling into an icy river stuff. And then just as Belle, she's done everything she can to try to fight off the wolves on her own. And she's like, I am going to get eaten. And then the beast comes and rescues her. He fights off the wolves and defends her, but they bite him a lot. And so he passes out from his wounds. And Belle is about to leave, but then she you can see that she gives it a second thought and is like, no, he saved me. I'm going to save him. And so she somehow gets the beast onto her horse and walks him back to the castle. And I really appreciate their dynamic in the next scene of, you know, obviously this is the moment where they start to turn and they're able to like each other a little bit more, but it's not too on the nose and it's not as we've seen in some worse Disney movies. They just fully like each other now. I like their petty little, well, if you hadn't done this, well, if you hadn't done this, well, if you hadn't done that. And it's like they're both right and they're both wrong. Right. He's upset because, you know, it hurts and she fights back and they're, you know, as you said, getting back and forth with each other. But they both, they both seem, you can see they both kind of realize they were in the wrong and they do thank each other for saving lives. And you can see the moment of turning. It may be my favorite scene, actually, even though it's not, you know, a big, huge scene. But just the fact that how well it's done. We have a brief scene of Gaston um, so we can find out what is his plot with what is it? Monsieur Dark? <laughs> one. Yes. Mr. Dark. One of my favorite, you know, practically one scene characters right up there with uh, whatever the guys, the customer in Brave Little Toaster. They're like, we'll pay you a lot of money to do this bad thing. And he's like, wait, so we're doing evil. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we're doing evil. And he's like, I love it. Like he he's not motivated by money. He just wants to do evil and he's got like creepy red eyes and green skin. Just asylum keeper who loves evil. It's it's funny. Yep. So obviously the plan is they're going to try to get Maurice locked up as a crazy person unless Belle will marry Gaston. Then we go back to the castle and we see Belle outside in the snow kind of walking her horse and the beast is talking to, uh, is it Cogsworth? And saying, you know, I want to do something for her. And Cogsworth is like, well, there's the usual flowers, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep. <laughs> Which feels like a dig at Lumiere. And Lumiere is like, no, no, no. If you want to know how to, like, run a house, that's what Cogsworth's for. You want to know how to do the dishes? Cogsworth is your man. You want to know how to ever smooch anyone ever? Cogsworth is not your guy. Lumiere is your guy. So then the beast shows her the library. It is such a sweet moment. I mean, even just the, I want to do something for her. Like the, you can't, you buy this romance so much. This is probably one of the best Disney romances because it actually, you know, takes time to develop it all. Always nice. It takes a little time to develop. I mean, it doesn't take place over a very lengthy period of time. It just seems like a few days. Uh, ignore the the sequels. It's okay. I should say midquels. <laughs> we'll get there. So she, of course, is thoroughly enchanted by the library and he gives it to her. 
which, you know, how she's going to carry that with her, who knows. But it's her place now. Also, it's the coolest, nicest, best, prettiest, most well-stocked library in history. It's amazing. And then we go into the Something There song. It's kind of a song that's going on in their heads. Very Broadway, though they don't actually have to move their mouths like in a real Broadway musical. This is what I was going to say is that I like that this song is all thoughts, which I think was probably done in part because, again, this sequence was added super last minute. So I imagine they're like, we can't do lip sync, but it actually works really well for them to both be, you know, falling for each other without actually talking to each other about it. And and basically realizing She's realizing he's not as horrible as he seemed at first. Suddenly he's dear and he's I can see that his, you know, how he's unsure and not uh, knowing what to do. And he is like, she's starting to accept me. She's not, you know, shuddering at my beastness anymore. And, you know, maybe there's something there that wasn't there before and she's, you know, it just goes back and forth with the two of them. And you see them doing a bunch of stuff together, hanging. They're hanging out together. Time is passing and they're starting to fall for each other. And then at the end, the servants are noticing and singing the, the final bit of the song. And then, of course, this is when human again happens. Everybody loves and remembers human again. <laughs> oh, what's that? What's that? No, it doesn't. We were watching the Disney Plus version, so so it didn't didn't happen. When it doesn't happen, we go straight into they're going to have a special evening. And so we see the beast in his bathtub getting all cleaned up because they're going to have basically a ball. This is where he's getting all washed up, right? And he gets his hair curled up and he goes stupid. And we have the uh, Beauty and the Beast song, as we talked about by sung by Angela Lansbury. Mrs. Potts. This is my favorite scene. Usually my favorite scene is the scene that makes me laugh the most, which would definitely be the Gaston song. But again, at the risk of overusing this word, I think this sequence is undeniable. It it's really short. You forget how short it is. You forget how short this song is. They couldn't afford much of the CGI. And that's the thing like it. I normally this is where I'd be like, uh, CGI. It's not as good as 2D. They really know how to use it. And the directors were very insistent on we only want to use CGI for this one scene. And I think that makes it work because it is isolated to this one special sequence. It now gives it this dreamlike quality, you know, this this quality of unreality it makes it feel like a very magical evening. Exactly. It is the best use of CGI in a Disney movie so far. I think it is my favorite era of how Disney movies look in a lot of ways, because I think they were still really smart with how they use the CGI. Mm-hmm. I just it, it makes me feel so profoundly. It's great. Even the babies on the ceiling are like, check this out. <laughs> Little cherubs. Yeah, sneak a peek. Yeah. Uh, French like Botticelli. <laughs> cherubs. <laughs> oh, man. So then Beast is asking her, you know, are you happy here? And she's like, well, I miss my father. And he thinks of his mirror. And he's like, I'll sh- I can show him to you. You can see your father. So he shares the magic mirror because he will do 
anything for her at this point, as we discover, because when she sees that her father is sick and lost in the forest again, he lets her go. The servants reasonably are like, what are you doing? I want to stop being a clock and living in the cupboard. Right. And he's like, I love her. Yeah. You know, he never even. I love her. I had to let her go. Never even says to her until much, much later that he loves her. He can only say it in private. Again, it's this yearning that makes you accept the beast character and forgive his sins. But it's great, though, that he does let her go, even though this is in some ways part of the original fairy tale, because Belle is never going to be able to properly love him while she's technically his prisoner. Yes, that would be too weird. If then it would be a movie about Stockholm syndrome and you'd be concerned. Right. And that's not what it is. So he has to let her go, even though the rose is almost wilted. And it's, you know, basically he's like, I'm going to be a beast forever, but at least I learned how to love. So, of course, she is able to rescue her father and she takes him home. I forgot that LeFou has been watching the house so that whenever they get home, Gaston can come back and put her father in the loony bin. I'm sorry, the Asylum de Lune. They're, of course, going, you know, he's crazy because he keeps talking about this beast. And Belle is like, he's not crazy. I can prove there's a beast. So she brings out the magic mirror and is like, show me the beast. And there he is. And everybody's freaking out. Oh, no, there is a beast. And, you know, her takeaway is supposed to be, you know, leave us alone. My father's not crazy. But Gaston is like, oh, well, then now we have to kill the beast. Yeah. Kill the beast. The the mob song. Yep. It's actually called the mob song. But I tend to think of it, of course, as kill the beast. But this is a really fun moment. This is even though Gaston is obviously a villain up to his point, this is his true villain turn where he's like, it's time for murder. And this is set up where, in addition to all the other ways he sucks, he's a trophy hunter. And so I feel like a big part of this is motivated by, you know, oh, the biggest trophy of all the beast. Does he have antlers? I use those in all of my decorating, you know. <laughs> and of course, they trap. Belle and Maurice in the cellar so they can't sneak off and warn the beast. And it's a very exciting moment, not only, you know, with the with the mob singing the song, but then with the the servants, they, you know, they sing the song back a different way. Also, of course, the line 50 Frenchmen can't be wrong. Oh, it's a great line. And the beast is willing to die here. He's so sad to not have Belle, which is a. A very dramatic and powerful turn for a Disney movie. And again, it, it makes the Beast fully sympathetic at this point and shows what a well-written character he is. Right. Chip stowed away in Belle's bag or something when she, or I don't even know, when she was headed home. And so he is able to use the steam-powered wood chopper to rescue Belle and Maurice from the cellar and the furniture of the enchanted furniture. You know, we're, we're skipping back and forth a lot here, trying to get keep track of all of our characters where they are going to fight to fight the townspeople off, um, even though Beast will not. And this is a great fight scene. I love Cogsworth got himself all dressed up for this scene with a big like admiral hat and He's wearing like a bandolier of something. This is such a delightful moment for sure. It is. It's it's an excellent choice for favorite scene. All the townsfolk eventually get scared off. 
But Gaston has, you know, snuck past everybody and is exploring into the castle and he finds the beast. So he shoots the beast with an arrow, but the beast is just like, whatever. And there's, again, so much excellent character work here. Yeah. In so many ways, just between the beast and Gaston, having whole character arcs throughout the scene where like Gaston at first is like, well, I want you to be the beast. I want you to be a trophy. And he's mocking him and he's like, fight me. But the beast won't fight until Belle returns. And Gaston also realizes that Beast is his romantic rival for Belle. Right. And Beast does not realize this. Beast think is still very much, despite all the wonderful moments they've had, is still in the mindset of like, Okay, but she can't actually love me. Like, whatever, she's my prisoner. I'm too fundamentally unlovable. There's no way she's ever coming back. And it's, you know, then he realizes and he's not going to kill him, even though he gets the advantage and he just growls, get out. It's true. A storm has started, of course, because, you know, you got to have a storm in this big fight. But he does win. He beats Gaston, doesn't kill him. And he just tells him to get out. And then he climbs up to is climbing up to where Bell is. Mostly what he says to Bell in this whole last segment is you came back because he's just so shocked that she came back. It's really powerful. Frequently, I'll talk about like, oh, you know, isn't it ridiculous how in Disney movies, the villain always has to die unrelated to the actions of the heroes you know, sometimes they're really reaching for it. Yep. Gaston getting killed by his own hubris is actually good. It actually feels like the proper end for the character. It is. And, you know, sometimes we talk about agency. You really don't want Beast to kill him. It's this fine tightrope they have to walk with Beast. Gaston stabs the Beast with a knife right when everything seems to be going great for him and then falls to his doom. And then the Beast is quite injured and is saying, you know, at least I got to see you one last time. And Belle is really upset. It's like, no, no, don't. Um, But then the beast seemingly dies. And then eventually she says, I love you just before or just after the last petal is falling. And then the magic, which I remember when I was younger, I loved this scene with all the magic, too. It's it's the music. We haven't been talking as much about Mencken's score. Yeah, because you want to talk about Ashman during the, you know, two and a half movies where you can. But yes, Mencken's score is amazing. Yes, it's a great moment here where the magic swirls around the beast and lifts him up in the air and he starts changing into a human and glowing out of his hands and feet. It's crazy. And then he turns back into a human and is lowered to the ground. And you're like, is he going to be human, but dead or what? I mean, it's a Disney movie. You know, he's alive. <laughs> and it always was funny to me that when Belle first sees him as a human, she's like, you know, looks at him like, is it really you? Which is like, you just saw him turn from one to the other. But you know, she's like, that. you're not my beast. <laughs> but she looks into his eyes and his eyes are the same. It's his, her beast. Oh, you're like mostly <laughs> hairless? Oh, that's not what I'm into. But sure, yeah. <laughs> Grow a beard, right? Every, all the other servants are turning human again and we're seeing all of that. And it's 
It's fun. This ending is the perfect length where we're not belaboring it. We're not like, you know, the the Delarm has like, oh, what happened to LeFou? Who who cares what happened to LeFou? But you see the human versions of the servants and you're like, oh, that's fun that they created human versions. And then the human versions actually do some stuff and have some good jokes and Cogsworth and Lumiere. And you're like, oh, this is really fun. I'm glad they have this. And then we have the reprise of the Beauty and the Beast song where they're dancing again and everybody's happy and watching and Maurice is there. So, you know, he's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I like that this is basically they took the dancing scene from the end of Sleeping Beauty and redid it for Beauty and the Beast because they didn't have time to come up with their own They scene. literally traced it because they ran out of time and they're like, who's yep. going to know? Yep, but it's great. And then it ends, you know, like Sleeping Beauty ends with the, the final page of the book. This ends with a stained glass window, but in basically the same pose, of course. I, the last line is funny where he goes, do I still have to sleep in the cupboard? <laughs> <laughs> and then the movie is over. It's a great movie. However, it does have Crappy Credits cover song. Oh, it does. Okay, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to... First, I was going to mention the Crappy Credits cover song of the Beauty and the Beast song by Celine Dion. You know what? I think enough time has passed that we can admit that Titanic song is really good. It was overplayed. It's still really good. Having said that, uh, this is but. It's the uncanny valley where you're like, nope, 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 nope. You can't (laughs) match the emotion and power of Angela Lansbury's performance with, you know, tale as old as time. But this did finally get, uh, actually, did Little Mermaid do this? I can't remember. But this was either one of or another, you know, Disney finally got their like top 40 hit with this Celine Dion song. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this was the first one to really go there. Because, of course, with Little Mermaid, they didn't do a cover version. They just used the songs from the movie. Right. And we neglected to mention part of the reasons they would do these crappy covers is because in order for them to get radio play, they would have had to pay the voice actors, you know, for the radio play. Um, And they didn't like doing that. They didn't like paying or uh, giving much credit to voice actors. That is the thing that Frozen changed because they tried to be like, hey, do you guys want the crappy cover song of Frozen? And everybody was like, no, no. Adina Menzel or Bust. Since then, voice actors have had much better equity at Disney than they've had before. Obviously, still plenty of problems and also insane that it took that long to get there. But... So we have a ton of sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides, and reboots. Do you want me to go first? We can go either way. The first real spinoff thing is the Broadway musical from 94. The first one, it was a really big deal. It's covered a lot in Disney War. We had the soundtrack for it that I listened to quite a bit. It makes perfect sense for this one to be the first Disney musical Uh, or the first, you know, one that turned into a Broadway musical because you don't even really have to adapt it. I know they did. I know they added and changed some stuff a little bit, but you have to add stuff because it's not quite long enough to be a Disney musical. You kind of want those to be two hours and this isn't there. It's uh, other than that, though, like it already feels like the structure of a Broadway musical. You know, it it even is limited to like basically you need a town set and you need a castle set, you know, like 
the two big Disney Broadway musicals were this one and The Lion King, and they've continued to do them for others, you know, often to some success. But like those are the two that had critical and, you know, really incredible commercial success. In fact, you know, some people say that like this in some ways contributed to trends that made Broadway worse because like, you know, rather than inventing new, really interesting original musicals, you know, it became more commercialized with it, whatever. Disney does what it does to every industry. <laughs> but yeah, this this Broadway musical was was well received and was made partially as a tribute to Howard Ashman and was good. And then the Lion King one, which is the opposite of this, where it's like, well, that's impossible to do as a musical. Somehow they did it and it was great. And those two cemented Disney dominance. Yeah, so that's a very important spinoff for like the history of Broadway. You want to give us a quick rundown of the park stuff? I mean, there's so much, but yeah, I mean, obviously, meet and greet characters. Um, they, act, I remember them having shows in the park, so not like showing the musical, but just having a stage show that you know where they act out the movie. They have done that in several places, and of course, putting it in you know parades and all the in, you know the the main shows. There is at Walt Disney World in their new updated Fantasyland. They actually have a the Beast's Castle there, and it has inside of it a Be Our Guest restaurant. It actually seems like they've got several different levels of restaurant. The Be Our Guest restaurant is the ultra fancy restaurant at Disney World, and then there's a Gaston's Tavern, which is kind of like the mid tier. And then there's like a Maurice's popcorn stand, you know, which is just a popcorn stand that looks like one of his crazy inventions. So I think it's funny that they have like all levels of food acquirement. There is a ride at Tokyo Disneyland now, a uh, a dark ride, The Enchanted Tale of Beauty and the Beast that only just opened in 2020. Interestingly, the Beast is always in beast form, not in prince form. Now we're talking about this. What are we talking about now? <laughs> oh what is this? This is a still. Besides <laughs> horrific artwork. This is a still from Beauty and the Beast, colon, The Enchanted Christmas from 1997. This was the second uh, direct-to-video sequel, like in Disney history, after Return of Jafar. It is the worst animated of these direct-to-video things I've seen so far. It's not the worst overall. I don't know what it is, but there are definitely ones worse than this. But it looks horrible, and I think that's probably because, you know, the direct-to-video uh, studio was relatively new. It's definitely a mid-quill, though. All of these are mid-quills. Yes, yes. I And I the reason the mom reacted so horrifically is because I... As I was watching this, I took many screenshots of some of the terrible character art. And I swear, this was not me, like, you know, pausing to get a specific face or a smear frame or whatever. Like, <laughs> they just hold on some of these poses. Oh, my They word. rarely, like, there, there are several moments where they just don't do lip sync. Characters are talking and they just, they're like, yeah, we don't need to move the lips. Several moments where characters aren't moving. 
I have actually seen that one, but it's been a long time. It came out in 97. It was probably around there when I watched it. Yeah, I also remember seeing it. Uh, we I, like Isaiah and I definitely rented this from Blockbuster a few times. So as you say, this is a mid quill. It takes place entirely in the something there montage. Apparently it takes place over Christmas. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem they have with these sequels is that they're like, well, what everybody wants to see is like the time where Beast is the beast and the servants are, you know, talking clocks and whatever. But we don't want to undo the ending of the movie, which I'm surprised they didn't do. I'm surprised there wasn't a sequel that's like, oh, no, the curse has been restored for some hack reason. Apparently, that was originally a sequel idea they had doing a like Gaston's younger brother, like, um, you know, Ursula's younger sister kind of thing. And they were going to name him. Averard, like the character from La Bella La Bette. Yep, yep, yep. Just even more blatantly ripping it off. The main plot is uh, Beast doesn't like Christmas because it turns out Christmas was the day that the curse happened. It was when he was at his most entitled as a child. And so that's why he is not going to help the witch. So he's like, Christmas is bad. And of course, Belle has to show him the true meaning of, you know, you've yeah, you've seen this yeah. story. Apparently, this is where you find out his name is Prince Adam. Yeah, whatever. I know, whatever. But also, Tim Curry, also got no business, plays Forte, who is the villain of this one. It's an insane idea. He's one of the servants. He used to be the court composer. He is an evil CGI organ with the special distinction of being the worst looking thing in the movie. <laughs> and the perfect counterpoint to what I was saying about the first movie, you know, oh, it's so smart how they use the CGI just in that one scene and don't have it constantly interacting with 2D animation. Yeah. Forte, the CGI organ. It's not that. Mm. Uh, it looks really bad. Uh, Tim Curry's doing his best, as he always does. You know, the man <laughs> is a professional. He doesn't miss. And it's a stupid character because for some reason, he is A, resentful of the fact that being an organ, he's stuck in the wall. Mm. Reasonable. But also never, ever wants the curse to drop because... Apparently, the beast being tormented, you know, Adam being tormented means that he dramatically plays the organ like he's Davy Jones. And so he's like, oh, I love getting played. So the beast has to stay angsty, which is insane. What a crazy idea. They so don't sell it at all. Very dumb. Uh, it's a very strange movie. Unfortunately, you know, despite these strange ideas and the hideous animation, actually watching it play out, it's just very boring. Again, it's like learn the true meaning of Christmas, whatever you've seen this story. Yeah, not good. Yeah, not good at all. Roundly hated. And yet, and yet nominated for five Annie Awards, the Animation Industry Awards. No. No to all of this. Well, they had nothing to compare it to, I guess. The other sequel, there's really nothing. The other direct-to-video sequel, there's really nothing to say about. Beauty and the Beast, Belle's Magical World, originally just called Belle's Magical World, yep. is, depending on which version you saw, originally three, then four, then the Disney Plus release is back to three episodes of a cancelled Beauty and the Beast TV show that were jammed together into a quote-unquote movie. They did have a different TV series called Sing Me a Story with Belle, where they had a live-action 
actress playing Belle narrating Disney cartoons, like telling stories. So, you know, like they'd show the cartoon of the three little pigs, the Disney cartoon, and she'd narrate it. Sounds way better. And this is the one where almost nobody came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only ones who did were Robbie Benson as the Beast, because what he's doing, Jerry Orbach and David Ogden Steers as Lumiere and Cogsworth, Kimmy Robertson as Fifi, because with respect to her, what she's doing, and okay, sure, Frank Welker as the dog, but Frank <laughs> Welker would do anything for anyone anywhere. The Disney Wiki page for this is especially funny. Uh, for example, under trivia, Angela Lansbury did not reprise her role as Mrs. Potts in this film. For unknown reasons, she has been replaced by Ann Rogers. I know what the reason was. <laughs> I know. I think I know why. Well, I think part of the problem is they all came back for the Enchanted Christmas thinking, oh, yeah, more Beauty and the Beast. It's going to be great. And then it was not. Well, also, the commitment to sign up to do the voice for a movie is different than the commitment required to do a voice for a TV show, right? Which is when they would have hired these actors for. Uh, Now, multiple places on the Disney Wiki page, it says, with no citation, as I've said in the past, no one should ever use the Disney Wiki for any reason. (laughs) But it says, considered by many to be Disney's worst direct-to-video film of all time. And later on, it also says, you know, this is widely considered the worst one. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. First of all, I couldn't find a citation for this, but more importantly, as... One of the few human beings deranged enough to now have seen all of these things. Not even close. The worst direct-to-video Disney thing is still uh, Mowgli's story, the (laughs) live-action Jungle Book thing. But even among the animated... I mean, heck, even among the Beauty and the Beast sequels, this is the second worst one. (laughs) Because two is so hideous and bad. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all I have to say about that. There was also a Delarm... That's really, really terrible. I mean, it's bad. Well, here's the thing. I did actually go ahead and watch it last night. It is just not as good. You cannot help spending the whole time comparing it to the animated movie because they literally sing the same songs, go through the same stuff. There's a few expanded little bits. They take out any reference of how long the curse has been going on, which is great. They do have one nice little throwaway line where... Bell asks Mrs. Potts why they were also cursed with him. She's like, you did nothing. And Mrs. Potts is like, that's right. We did nothing. We did nothing to try to stop his bad behavior. Basically, the point is they have one little throwaway moment and you're like, you know, that's all you need. to. But overall, there's just no point to that movie. It just feels like, why did you even make this? It just makes me want to watch the animated movie more or even, you know, go watch the black and white La Bella La Bette because they're both so much better. We've we've talked mostly about La Bella La Bette, you know, which is a beloved classic Mm -hmm. masterpiece and a wonderful film. There have been 700 movie versions of Beauty and the Beast before and after this one. You could do a live action Beauty and the Beast, but as with all of these Delarms, They do it, or almost all of them, you know, like Christopher Robin. But all the ones we truly call the Delarms, they do the exact same story beat for beat. And as you say, it's just worse. It's strictly worse. It is like the same product with a downgrade. It is. You don't get the same passion in the songs. It doesn't feel as much like it's like the 
the animated movie feels so much like it is a Broadway musical, a Broadway production kind of thing, right? And they don't give it that energy in the live action movie. They just make it be like a like a regular kind of movie musical. And it just doesn't work. I wouldn't say it's the worst I've seen. It's on par with the Cinderella Delarm. Like It's exactly the same as the Cinderella Delarm. Because if you watch that, it really tells you everything you need to know because it's the exact same number except way less is happening. As you say, it's super dark. The character designs are horrendous. Yeah, and a lot of them are like so detailed that you don't feel like you can actually get to know the character, right? They look too much like real things. But hey, they give the Beast a song where he goes, I'm the Beast! So doesn't that make it worth it? That's not what he says. (laughs) It's actually a pretty good song. But the only reason why that feels like a great moment is because it is not a reused song. Yeah. Uh, it's really bad. It's so exhausting to talk about these things. One thing we haven't said about these Delarms before that I actually knew before, but realized this time we'd forgotten to mention, they don't pay the screenwriters of the original films for the Delarms, even though they use the exact same stories. Like, like the exact same lines, mm. the exact same stories, beat for beat. Frequently. Like if you had a producing role or a director role, like the two directors got a little bit of money for uh, the Delarm. But the screenwriters don't, despite the fact that by, you know, any reasonable measure, they are fully using the same script. You know, whatever. You can pay whoever you got to write the two new lines. So... You know, part of the reason that they make these movies this way, as with so many Disney things, is so that they can, you know, screw over labor, which is great. A great company. So glad we keep talking about them. (laughs) Uh, Anything else in the Beauty and the Beast uh, spinoffs you want to talk about? I think those are all the main points. There were quite a few video games, but I don't know that there were any that were, like, popular enough to make a big deal about. So... We rate these movies not on a numerical system, but by asking each other two questions. The first of which is, Mom, would you recommend this movie? Yes, I would. I would definitely recommend this movie. You show it to a kid? I would indeed show it to a kid. It might be a little scary for a small child, but I I would still show it to a kid. And I would make sure I tell any boys that it is not a girl's movie now that I know that it was a thing. There you go. Any final thoughts beyond that? I don't think so. I think I finally remembered all the different things I was going to say about it. (laughs) How about you? (laughs) Uh, No, I would not recommend this movie. Um, Flagrant scenes of luggage abuse. It's, you know. Because that way you can watch it all for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course I would recommend this movie. And I'd definitely show it to a child. I was actually there when um, one of your sisters showed this to the first time to one of their young children. And I remember that very well. Seeing it through a young child's eyes is actually a really fun way to uh, experience it. It is. This was, you know, some uh, a fairly scared child who doesn't like watching a lot of movies. And, you know, she totally loved it. And it was one of those things where it's like, well, if she can put up with it at the age she was at, uh, definitely you can you can show this to a child without any concerns. Just don't even more than the the gender thing. Don't let them rent the sequel like Isaiah and I did. It's very bad. Don't look at it. The only bad thing I can say about this movie really, 
is that it's not my favorite of the Renaissance. All I, that's like the only, you know, other than a few small complaints about, oh, this or that logic. Mm-hmm. The only real thing I have to say is that, like, somehow it gets even better than this. And then it gets worse. <laughs> right. And then it kind of gets better again. Mm-hmm. Next week is a movie that is definitely not a girl's movie. We're going to be covering <laughs> what was my favorite. I don't know if it still is of the Renaissance era. Aladdin from 1992, back with Musker and Clement's mom. What do you think of that movie? I have to say, when I originally was seeing these movies at the time they were coming out, I felt like each new one that came out was like now my new favorite movie. Oh, Little Mermaid was so great. It's my favorite. Oh, Beauty and the Beast is even better. It's my favorite. Aladdin, that's so amazing. It's my favorite. (laughs) So until next week, when we're covering yet another favorite. I'm me. And I'm mom. And it all started the Wissam House. Oh, ho, ho, back at Eiffel Tower. (laughs) Gerard Depardieu, Maurice Chevalier. (laughs) 